Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. Well, Lydia, the U.S. Supreme Court is returning to the bench on January 8th to hear arguments in cases spanning from administrative agencies to the no-fly list to the Sixth Amendment's Confrontation Clause. And we will dive into a handful of those with our guest. But first, we wanted to give an update on a couple of Trump-related matters that really bubbled up to the court at the end of the year. So, Kimberly, can you give us an update on that special counsel uh, Jack Smith's request regarding the criminal prosecution of the former president? Sure, Lydia. So just a reminder, special counsel Jack Smith had requested that the Supreme Court weigh in on whether Trump is entitled to immunity from criminal prosecution for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. So Smith acknowledged that the matter was currently pending before the D.C. Circuit, but he said time is really of the essence and that any delay in an answer threatens to push back the trial, which is currently scheduled for early March. But on December 22nd, the justices denied Smith's request to skip over the D.C. Circuit. They, of course, did not explain their reason why they did that. But I don't think that it's really all that coincidental that earlier that day, the D.C. Circuit had announced that it intended to fast track its consideration of the case. And specifically, it set oral arguments for January 9th. So I think it's possible that the justices really wanted to hear from the D.C. Circuit first, since this is a pretty novel question. Um, So, you know, good to have some more judges weighing in here. And I expect that the losing party, whoever it may be in the D.C. Circuit, is going to come up to the Supreme Court and that eventually they will hear this issue, whether or not it's before that March trial. Who knows? But I don't think this is the last time we'll see this appeal. Right. And then we have those uh, cases over the efforts to remove the former president from the ballot ahead of the 2024 election. So, Kimberly, it doesn't seem like the justices had a very relaxing break here. (laughs) Um, Fill us in on what's happening there. Right. So these cases involve the 14th Amendment so-called insurrection ban, which very generally bars certain individuals who have engaged in a rebellion or an insurrection from holding certain public office. Now, I've run over a lot of really important details and nuances there, but just that's generally uh, the gist for our purposes. As of right now, two states, Colorado and Maine, have indicated that Donald Trump is ineligible to be on the ballot because of his actions on January 6th. Others have said that he is eligible, you know, given the split, the importance of the issue and just how novel these claims are. I mean, these haven't really been adjudicated before. It seems like this one is destined for Supreme Court review. And then the question is really just one of, well, timing and you know, what are they ultimately going to do? So on the question of timing, uh, Trump appealed the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, but there's actually a previous appeal that's working a little bit ahead of that one. That one comes from the Colorado Republican Party. Uh, Both parties in that case, the state GOP and the individuals seeking to have the former president placed off of the ballot, both of those parties have asked the court to issue a ruling before Super Tuesday, March 5th. Um, Tight. Yeah. So the court hasn't said whether or not it's going to do that. But I mean, that is crazy fast, right? If you think about it, it seems hard to think that the court is going to decide all. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of issues in the case, and they're all 
you know, issues that really haven't been sorted out before. So I can't imagine really the justices saying, you know, we're just going to decide this on the briefing. So you think you have two months to really get in briefing arguments and then a considered decision that just seems really fast. Um, But again, you know, the court really just needs to look to, you know, the presidential election of 2000 to see that the justices can act on that kind of timeline. So it is possible. But I don't think right now we have an indication what the justices are thinking. Yeah, Bush versus Gore is definitely something, a case to look to on that one. Now that we're all caught up, uh, let's bring on our guest. Anastasia Bowden is the director of the Robert Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the justices are going to hear nine cases, including a pair of cases on the so-called Chevron Doctrine. Uh, We're going to do a deep dive on those cases next week. So we wanted to bring you on to talk about some of the other cases that may be flying under the radar. Uh, One of those cases happens to involve the FBI's no-fly list, um, and it's got some really wild facts. So can you tell listeners a bit of background about that case? Yeah, there's this case called uh, FBI versus Fickery, and it'll be heard January 8th, Monday. And this is a sleeper case, as you said. Um, It's one that's not getting as much attention as the Chevron deference cases, but I think it's actually one that's vastly important because it has to do with the way that lawyers, and in my experience, because I'm a former civil rights attorney, it has to do with the way that government lawyers try to get your case dismissed based on sort of procedural games rather than defending their actions on the merits. So in this case, the plaintiff is Eunice Fickery, and he's a naturalized U.S. citizen of Eritrean descent, and he sued arguing that the government had violated his substantive due process and procedural due process rights by placing him on the terrorist screening database and the no-fly list. And listeners may recall those were created by President Bush in the wake of 9-11 to prevent people from flying or taking sensitive jobs. There's different uh, prohibitions depending if you're on the database or on the no-fly list. So while Sudan on business, Fikri was told by U.S. government agents that he had been placed on this no-fly list um, due to his association back in the States with a Portland mosque. But he was told that he would be removed if he would become a government informant, which he declined. Uh, Later, when he was uh, in the UAE for business, he was tortured and interrogated, he says, at the U.S. government's request. And at that point, he basically becomes stranded in the UAE because he can't fly, right? And it's sort of a sordid history from here. Years later, he eventually makes his way back to the United States, and he sues the government for his being placed on the no-fly list and in the database. And so they're litigating, and initially he's told by the government, you're not going to be removed from this list. Sorry, we're going to litigate this case. But about a year into litigation, rather than explain or defend any of its actions, the government mysteriously removes him without giving any explanation why. And then it suggests that the court dismiss the case because he's not harmed anymore. He's not on the list anymore. And the court acquiesces. The, the district court dismisses his case. Now, the Ninth Circuit reverses saying, hey, there's a longstanding rule that parties can't just cease their conduct to get out of a lawsuit because there's a possibility that they'll just resume that conduct in the future. So a party who engages in what's called voluntary cessation and then claims the lawsuit is moot bears a really heavy burden of making sure that it's absolutely clear that they will not re-engage in the allegedly wrongful behavior in the future. So here the FBI has to demonstrate that it's not going to put them on that list again. So, okay, it goes back down to the district court and the FBI says, 
fine. We say, we announce, we declare in this signed affidavit, we won't put him back based on currently available information. But we will not renounce the fact that we put him there on the first place. We're not going to admit that that's wrong, and we're not going to tell you why we did it. And so the district court says, mm, that seems good enough, and it dismisses the case again. So the case goes back to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit says, that is not good enough. You have to make sure, that you, have to, you have to convince us, persuade us that this wrongful behavior absolutely won't happen again. Here, you just removed him. You didn't say why. There's no change in official policy that we know of, meaning that you can't put him back on. We don't know why you put him on the first place or if he does something, if you resume some sort of conduct, let's say that association with the Portland Mosque again, if you're going to put him back on again, it's just not enough. Rather than renouncing your your conduct, the court said you've doubled down. And I liked it, Leah, as you sort of made a, a, a pun in the beginning. I love when judges do this, too. The Ninth Circuit said in its opinion in response to the government's arguments, these arguments do not fly. It's not enough. It's not good enough. <laughs> And so now the case is back at the Supreme Court to to see what's good enough um, to get a case dismissed. Right. And so the two sides have, of course, um, put forth two very different tests for determining when something like this is actually moot. And so can you sort of explain to us the difference between the two competing tests? Yeah, I think uh, from my point of view... Fickery just wants the normal test that ordinarily applies to apply here. So it says there's a rule, and it usually applies to everyone, that courts must consider whether there are barriers to the party reengaging in that behavior or whether the party disavowed the previous behavior. And here, neither of those apply. There's nothing to assure the court that the government won't just change its mind and put them back on. And they didn't disavow. They doubled down on it. And they said, we don't have to tell you why why we did it. And we're not going to admit that it's wrong. The government, on the other hand, in my view, and I think a lot of the, uh, the amici's view, says that there should be a special rule for the government um, where you assume that the government's engaged in good faith. And that, you know, this this promise based on currently available information is enough alone. The government's promise alone is enough because we presume when it's a government actor that they're not uh, doing things for the sole purpose of manipulating the court or getting out, playing a procedural game and, and getting out of the lawsuit. And so in our brief, we wrote, the Cato wrote an amicus brief in this case, and we say, hey, courts need to meaningfully engage. Um, that's a core principle of separation of powers. There should not be a special rule. What's what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And by the way, this assumption of good faith really is not warranted. If you go back and you look, we give examples in our brief of lots of cases where the government does, in fact, play procedural games. And so we shouldn't carve out a special exception for the government. Can I just ask you one question about how sort of national security and sort of the secrecy comes into play here? Because it's sort of pulling in two different directions here, right? Because the government says, look, this is national security. You guys should just like trust us. Um, But then on the other side, it's the idea that because everything is so secret, there really needs to be some sort of accountability. Is that am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, the government, of course, takes the position in favor of secrecy. And it says, hey, if you allow people to go to court, even after we take them off the list, they're going to be able to find out all sorts of things that we deliberately leave secret, our, our formulas and, and our information and our data and all these things that we don't want being left out to the public because it'll allow now, you know, terrorists and dangerous people to sort of evade our procedures. And, you know, I think 
as you said, there's a tension, you know, and in some ways that's exactly what makes it most important in our society for there to be transparency. And courts are used to this type of thing. There are all sorts of cases where courts must maintain secrecy and evaluate sensitive information. They're very well equipped. There are procedural rules in place to allow courts to do this. And so I think, you know, a lot of people who are more on the civil liberties side think, no, 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 we're not putting anyone in danger. We just want, you know, to protect our civil liberties by allowing courts to to really engage with this type of thing. I wanted to ask you if there's any other implications beyond the no-fly list in terms of this issue, you know, involving mootness. You know, is the government likely to voluntarily stop doing this thing, you know, that's being challenged in court in other instances? And if so, when? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, one thing that we've seen before is that the government will, it it tries to pick off plaintiffs, right? So there's a line of cases where there were some Orthodox Jewish prisoners who brought a claim requesting kosher meals in prison. When you got a plaintiff who had a very prominent attorney, they would deliberately say, okay, you get Orthodox or you get a kosher meals in order to try to moot that case. And so certainly, you know, if we open up the door for the government and we give it a less restrictive rule here, the benefit of the doubt, all sorts of civil rights cases are now uh, available for the for the taking for the government to just get off the court's docket. And I think that's really dangerous. I'll just give you one more example from my own experience litigating, which is I had brought a First Amendment case uh, in Virginia challenging Virginia's happy hour advertising rule. And Virginia, in response to the lawsuit, said, court, if you strike down this advertising restriction, people will die. They literally said this, people will die. They'll see the happy hour. That doesn't sound very happy. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't. And it's supposed to, it is this light case, right? Like we just want freedom of speech and we just want, you know, happy hour to be freely advertised. And they said, nope, people will see the advertisements and they will die. Well, meanwhile, the that same, those same attorneys were lobbying the legislature to over to repeal the law in order to moot our lawsuit. And in fact, that's what ended up happening. So on the one hand, they're saying to the court, you can't, you can't rule against us. But in reality, they're, you know, behind closed doors lobbying for the law to be repealed so that we won't set bad precedent or in their view, bad precedent in the courts. So there's all sorts of, you know, constitutional cases that would be affected um, by a special rule for the government in this case. Well, that's a, a, an interesting case. Um, the other two cases that we also wanted to talk about both deal with property rights. And uh, let's go ahead and start with the Sheets case. This one also has some pretty interesting facts. Can you tell us what kicked all of this off? Sure. So in this case, George Sheets had applied to the county of El Dorado to build a manufactured house. But pursuant to the county's legislation, this is at the county level, it has this generally applicable law for anyone in this zone who wants to do this type of construction. It said that George Sheets had to pay $23,000, almost $24,000 to finance unrelated traffic road improvements. So you want your right to use your property? Well, then you have to pay us. You know, it's using, essentially using people as ATM machines. And sure, the government can make you offset harms that you are creating when you develop your property. That's, of course, that's part of the government's, the state's core police power. But its measures have to actually be aimed at offsetting the harms that you're creating. And that was established back into um, pivotal Supreme Court cases, Nolan and Dolan, which say that when the government wants to to have an exaction, when it wants to demand something as a condition of you using your property, there has to be a true nexus between what the government's demanding of you and proportionality to what the government's demanding of you, between proportionality between the harm that you're creating 
and what it's demanding of you. And here, the county isn't making any sort of determination like that. It didn't say, hey, George, this is, you know, you're going to create this, this amount of traffic increase and it's going to harm our roads this much and that's why we're demanding $23,000. This is just a law that it passed that applies to everyone based on a certain formula. But the courts here said, well, Nolan and Dolan only apply when this is sort of a case-by-case basis where the government is deciding, you know, in in anyone's specific case, whether they have to uh, give up an exaction. Here, this is a generally applicable law. So it's what's called a legislative exaction. And those are totally immune from Nolan and Dolan review. And so the question for the Supreme Court is whether legislative exactions are immune from Nolan and Dolan review or whether they're subject to the same type of scrutiny as every other type of exaction. So how prevalent are these kind of fees? Are they pretty rare or do we see a lot of jurisdictions imposing them? Because it seems kind of wild that you want to you know, use your property and then all of a sudden you get a big fine like this. Yeah, they're they're widely common and more common than I think people think. Um, there's things like public art fees. So, you know, I once was had an inquiry from a woman who wanted to open a doggy spa and uh, it was actually in Palm Desert, where I'm from, where I'm sitting now. And they said in order for her to open up this doggy spa, she had to pay, I think it was something like $20,000 in, she had, to, she had to create public art uh, in the amount of $20,000 just to open her doggy spa. So we've got public art fees, there's affordable housing requirements, there's just permit fees, there's sometimes the government tries to demand easements over your property. These are very, very common. And I think not everyone knows about them because very often they affect a slice of the populace, right? It's it's only people who are engaging in um, maybe commercial construction or certain areas. So so we don't all feel it. It's really exactly what the takings clause was meant to protect against, and that is the taking of property from A, you know, a small group A, to give to B, everyone else. Um, and it's it, it results in this targeting of, of a sliver of the population, which is really unfair and which it's exactly the type of thing that should be subject to Nolan and Dolan scrutiny. So, I mean, I have a thousand questions about why dogs themselves are not art, but I guess that's not, that's probably not going to come up. Um So I guess going back to Nolan and Dolan, which was like my least favorite day in property class. Um, (laughs) So I'm not happy that this case is here. But I guess what's the argument that um, this should apply to these legislative enactments as opposed to sort of the one off? Is it this idea that there's too much discretion in one area and it's sort of restrained whenever it's this general law that the legislature is passing? Yeah, the argument that the the government makes for sort of a Nolan and Dolan exception, because in reality, it should just be Nolan and Dolan is is the rule, right? So why are we carving out a legislative exception? The government says, well, in Nolan and Dolan, there's a lot of discretion, so a lot of potential for arbitrariness. Um, And also, when you have a legislative exaction, something that affects the population more broadly than just a one-off permit request, that the democratic process is sufficient to protect you because it's being passed through the legislature and the legislature, the legislature or, you know, whatever, a big community board or whatever has to sort of cobble together a consensus. It's more likely to engage in behavior that's going to protect everyone um, or at least more likely than, say, a rogue permit uh, decider who's who's doing his own thing and, and there's no democratic process there to protect you. So that's the argument. But, you know, that's sort of a, a distinction without a constitutional difference. It's a it's a policy argument, but I don't see how that's supported by the text or the history or the court precedent um, when it comes to Nolan and Dolan. 
And finally, uh, the Supreme Court on the 17th is going to hear arguments in a fight that Texas property owners uh, brought for just compensation after a state highway project flooded their properties. Uh, Can you tell us uh, what the property owners are arguing and what the Supreme Court is being asked to decide in that case? Sure. And here we come full circle to our first discussion (laughs) about procedural games, because what happened here was Texas set up rain barriers to ensure that the highways would stay open for emergency evacuations. Of course, that's a good thing, perfectly fine thing for the government to do, and they were effective at doing it. But the result of setting up these rain barriers and keeping one part of the highway dry was to flood other parts of the highway, which ended up carrying over and ruining some people's homes. And so the property owners file a claim in state court saying this is a taking of our property. You've you've caused damage to our property and we want compensation, just compensation. So they brought this claim in state court. The government removed the case to federal court and then it argues that there's no jurisdiction in federal court because uh, it says the Fifth Amendment takings clause is not self-executing, which means that that clause requires legislation in order to be implemented or to have a cause of action in federal court. And because there's never been any sort of congressional authorization against states for this type of case in federal court, there's no jurisdiction. So they remove the case to federal court, then argue there's no jurisdiction in federal court, and the court dismisses the case. So talk about procedural games. This is exactly the type of, you know, this is the reason why we say no no benefit of the doubt. Um, And so the question, of course, now is whether the Fifth Amendment is self-executing, and that means you can just go into federal court and sue a state, or whether the clause does, in fact, require uh, that type of legislation. Well, thank you so much for joining us. These are really interesting cases to watch, um, and hopefully they won't get swallowed by the, you know, 27 hours of oral arguments they're going to have in the Chevron cases, which, again, listeners will hit hit on next week for you guys. But um, appreciate you. talking about these three with us thanks for having me all right well those are three really interesting cases that we get to watch um, ahead of the arguments in both relentless and loper bright which are those cases on the chevron doctrine and again listeners we will be doing a deep dive into that one next week until then you can follow along with all the latest supreme court news at news.bloomberglaw.com Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know, but you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.